0: So, hey, my name is Nunny, and I just got to share. Understand your report. If it doesn't feel right, it probably is not, and
1: live, love, life. Welcome to Our NBC Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer, from SHARE Cancer Support. I'm your host, Lisa Laudico, and on the last Monday of every month, we share with you messages from our listeners and guests in this segment called the Just Gotta Share Listener Roundup. You just heard the voice of Nani Reese giving us one of her many pearls of wisdom during our episode with her that covered Brain Mets earlier this month. We launched this podcast just six weeks ago to create an audio space for people like us who are living with MBC where we could share stories and voices, resources, and expert advice. So far, we have dug into the critical issues surrounding racial disparities in healthcare for Black people and other people of color living with NBC. And we also did a series focused on brain meds. With one notable exception, we're all new to this podcast game, and it has been a real labor of love. Thank you so much for tuning in. One thing everyone wanted on the RNBC Life team was the ability to connect with you, our listeners, and for you to get the opportunity to tell us your stories. To do that each month, we'll ask you, our listeners, to send us a just-got-to-share moment, anecdote, story about the reality of living with this crappy disease, or simply what's on your mind. We're looking forward to hearing from you when you send us a short voice memo to our email at at sharecancersupport.org, or by recording a message directly on our website's connect page at rmbclife.org. When you send us your Just Gotta Share voice memo, be sure to say your name, where you're from, if you want, and start your message with, I just gotta share, and then say your message. We look forward to hearing you on next month's episode. Here's I Just Gotta Share insight from our guest, Abigail Johnson, who also spoke to us earlier this month.
2: I think that one of the the lessons that, that I have been learning in a big way recently is that
1: vulnerability
2: is not a weakness that vulnerability is a strength. And I, I think part of it's my personality and part of it's, I think when you're a professional, like a lawyer, when you have clients who are looking to you to have all the answers you get used to, or I got used to kind of always being the person who had it all together. I'm the oldest of six kids. I think that there's something about that as well. But over the last year plus of blogging and um, sharing my heart with the, the world in a lot of ways, I've just I've realized that it's not a weakness and it's not something that's shameful and it's not something that needs to be hidden but that uh, vulnerability is what makes us human and vulnerability is a strength so it's been a, a big uh, aha moment for me in the in some recent uh, thought processes
1: when I heard Abigail speak about vulnerability I reflected that in fact just by knowing Emily Garnett, who we were speaking about on that podcast, and knowing Emily's work on her blog and podcast, I was treated to a masterclass in how to be vulnerable while living with MBC. It is definitely something that I'm reminded of daily and agree wholeheartedly with Abigail that vulnerability is what makes us human and it is a strength. It's one of my goals for this podcast to provide the space for all all of us to be vulnerable as we work to move the ball forward with support, NBC research, and true awareness of this disease and our lives. For today's show, we have more Just Gotta Share nuggets from our inaugural month on air. One in particular has some spicy language, so here's your warning. And we also thought it would be good to introduce ourselves, the team of folks living with NBC who make this podcast. We now have five co-hosts, including me, who represent our community, and we look forward to introducing our first male co-host next month. You'll have heard from Jersey Baker, Sheila McGlone, and Shante Randall already, and we look forward to Natalia Green on podcasts this fall. In addition, this little project would never happen without our talented, organized, connected, and all-around lovely humans, senior producer Ann Woodward and producer Victoria Goldberg. So the group of us got together the other day on Zoom, of course, to just talk about our backgrounds and why we wanted to be part of this podcast. So here we are nominating Shante Randall to kick us off.
3: <laughs> oh, yay, just because I like to talk. You opened your mouth. She <laughs> you got on makeup too. Woo-woo.
4: Yeah, look at you. Yeah, you look good.
3: Um, I was I was I went to chemo ready ready, but uh my platelets are low, so um, my name is Shantaine mm-hmm. Randall. I live in Columbia, Maryland, which is a suburb uh, between Baltimore and DC. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, first diagnosed early stage triple negative in October of 2017. Um, had the usual uh, D followed by chemo, no radiation, and I was NED, no evidence of disease for about 11 months and then I started experiencing shortness of breath and pain and I ended up having a metastatic recurrence it was a lesion in my sternum of which I've had proton beam radiation, then I had one in my arm and I had regular radiation. Then I had nothing for a while. And then in December, I had um, a massive spread in many bones to include my liver. And so I started on a clinical trial and I'm actually uh, stable. I'm on my eighth month and I'm actually stable with the meds that I am taking. I am 43 African American army vet and proud mother to a recent college graduate. I still work full-time. I have two jobs, a full-time and a part-time job, because living with metastatic breast cancer is very expensive. I love to advocate. It has become a passion of mine to make sure I share my story for young women, and especially women of color, young women of color, because the disparities are something that's very alarming in 2020. And I really feel like I want to do my part to make sure um i spread the word in my community and um, i love being part of the podcast because i learn so much um every episode and i learn so much from our our um, other co-hosts and other members of the team so i'm so excited to be part of
5: this
6: we're glad you're how here. do you do it shante i didn't know you had a part-time job too you are <laughs> amazing
5: and a part-time what do you and do all yeah, the, the stuff you do yeah I don't know how you're
6: still standing. I would be like flat
3: out. I know. Right, right. Um, I don't know. I've been, uh, my mom raised me that way. I've seen her multitask. And so when I did, when I only had one job, I was so bored. I was working out too much. Actually, I was like working out three times a day just to get rid of the energy. So it's like, it's not hard work. So it's like maybe an hour, um, three times a week. And so, but it's, and I listen to, I listen to our podcast now, but normally I'm listening. I used to listen to other podcasts and music. So I don't know. It's just
6: something that helps me. I don't do well when I'm idle.
1: Next up is our senior producer, Ann Woodward.
6: Okay. So uh, my name's Ann Woodward. I live in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I've been here 28 years, but I actually um, consider myself a, a good Midwesterner. I was diagnosed in 2015, de novo like Lisa. Um, but unlike Lisa, had zero history of breast cancer that I was aware of. And so um, had no symptoms, no nothing, woke up one morning in pain. And by that night discovered uh, my liver was riddled with, with um, tumors. So I sort of started in a, in a haze and my mission was to go back to work to the job that I loved. And um, that's what I did. So I worked for another 2 years and then I'm ER positive and I'm on Ibrance and Letrozole and as anybody out there knows Ibrance is a fatigue monster. So I'm um, on my 57th cycle, and after two more years of work um, in the news business and production, which is draining, I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I had to give up my career, which was really, really hard. And I think I've been sleeping since I left my job for two years, because that's uh, what iBrands does. I'm thrilled to, to be. Lisa asked me to join. I, you know, I have always been a behind-the-scenes person. That's what I do. I work behind the scenes to try and create opportunity and, and, and work with others. And so I'm happy to have found something where I can have my niche maybe in the community, which is helping support others, get their voice out and, and working on the pod and working with Victoria on the meds helpline. So I've just tagged Victoria, <laughs> you know, trying to enjoy enjoy that time while I have some some ability to be mobile and, and do what I do. But I'm, I'm really thankful that my um, first treatment lines have worked i've I've been on two lines of treatment but i haven't had a progression so you know i'm I'm, I'm going to be five years in december this will be the first presidential election i have not been working in a television studio since 1992 and i got to tell you i think i'm gonna miss it
1: oh my gosh
6: yeah i've worked on every election since
1: 1992 wow and yeah and as i'm sad As our senior producer, we are so lucky to have you because you have so much production expertise, and uh, I know from my from where I sit, this podcast could not happen without you. And we're so, 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 so grateful. But also we'll, we'll hold your hand through this election cycle because I think all of us are going to be (laughs) on the edge of our seats. It's going to be exciting. Uh, I tell you, there's nothing like being in a room watching
6: History be Made. There's just nothing that compares and everybody's been in a situation like that. Sheila and Shantae in the field, um, in a military experience, you know, Victoria. But when you can sit and watch and be a part of, oh, of something, of it, it's just stunning. And so, yeah, I'll miss it, but, I'll, you yeah. know, maybe watch for I- one. Back, Sheila. <laughs> no, okay. So I am Sheila McLeod, and I am a black woman, and I am 55 years
0: old. I was diagnosed uh, 10 years ago with de novo um, her2 positive erpr positive breast cancer. Mm-hmm. I was sitting at my desk and I sneezed and it burned and I said, "Hmm, that's weird. That's that's that don't feel right." So I thought it was my breast and I went to my military doctor and I said, "Something feels really something's wrong." And she I said, "I think it's my breast." And she said, "Well, no breast cancer doesn't hurt and i was like well something something don't feel right so she did a um, mammogram i went in and got my mammogram and i had stage four breast cancer that spread to my liver and ribs and actually the um radiologist she um he pulled me in and he said you see this white stuff this is breast cancer he actually showed me um my uh the film and he said what you were feeling was every time you sneeze the cancer was pressing up on your ribs so through my sneeze i found out i had breast cancer (laughs) which is crazy yeah that's (laughs) just
3: like a normal everyday thing like
0: yeah and it burned like it burned really bad and i was just like i've never had heartburn or anything so as i tell women if some feel something is wrong something is wrong my mother always said go with your sixth sense and your sixth sense is probably right so I mm-hmm. always said guys give yes. the sixth sense, and mm-hmm. we know something's wrong with our body so i'm a 25 year air force veteran uh i was active duty at the time so i didn't have the choice to go to a military doctor because they <coughs> have oncologists um, so I had to go down to St. Louis, Missouri, which is about 12 miles across the border. And I went and I met my doctor and, you know, we just had this relationship for 10 years. I'm on my six line uh, mm-hmm. of treatment. I'm on a clinical trial. I've been on a trial for two years. It's working. It's brutal. <laughs> Right. But working and I did not have to get on a trial. So I want people to know that clinical trials are not a last resort. And if you like a clinical trial or if you don't like a cl- clinical trial, you can always get off of it. It's stuff is mandatory that you have to stay on it. Uh, and I encourage black women to get on clinical trials because 5%, you know, 5% is a low percentage as to black women participating in clinical trials. Yeah, I've had seven surgeries. They had to remove my ovaries because HER2 positive, ERPR positive, the cancer feeds off your estrogen. So I haven't had estrogen for, what, 10 years now. And little did I know what estrogen means. (laughs) And it means a lot for a woman, so. I had a mastectomy. Um, actually, they didn't want to do a mastectomy at first because they're like, it's kind of defeating the fir- purpose because it's already in your bloodstream, basically. And, you know, I was like, well, I just want this breast off of me. It's just, this is what just tried to kill me. So I, um, she, my doctor went to the tumor board and they said, yeah, do it. And once they hit my mastectomy, I was stable for five years. So I don't know whether it was the mastectomy that, you know, uh, or I was on Herceptin, Progetta, and uh, Right. And that's why I've always said and told my daughter that I want to donate my body for research because every medicine that I've been on, I've been able to be stable for years. My first treatment was three years. My next one was five, and this one is two. So I've always been able to, um, my body has always been able to handle treatments. So, you know, like I told my daughter, I, you know, uh, just donate my body to research for the sake of, you know, women and black women. So, um, and that's part of the reason why I did the clinical trial. Um, yes, yeah, so I had a mastectomy, they removed my right breast and they did a breast, breast reduction. And actually I did the expanders and it got infected. So I had to have a, I had a stuff infection
4: Mm-hmm.
0: My body rejected the expanders. Mm-hmm. So they had to go in, they had to flush it out. It was crazy. <laughs> and I couldn't do the expanders. So they did the flap and uh, they took my stomach muscles and they made me a breast. And, you know, some women, they like to be flat. Beautiful. You know, I say do what makes you happy. If you find joy in that, do it. You know, I always tell people it's no right or wrong to breast cancer because we don't know. You don't know what you don't know. You know so. And um, you know, I did get married. So you can't find love with a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. So don't give up, because God has someone <laughs> <out> else.
1: <there. laughs> That's so cool to hear. Yeah, I did. That's said, oh, really, good. I did. <laughs> no. <laughs> no.
0: Really good. I did, and you know, actually, I asked him the other day. I said, "Why did you marry me?" He was like, "Cause I seen your strength," and I was like, "For real?" So,
1: oh. That's like the most romantic thing I think a man or a woman could say to their partner. Yeah, because yeah. he sees you, he knows you, and respects you.
0: Because he met me with no breasts, because I went a year and a half wearing a prosthesis, and I do remember one day going out the house with my, out my prosthesis, and it it's almost like the world ended. I was like, oh my god, people are going to be crazy. But then I'm like, no it might strike up a conversation where I could tell people to check their breasts or have you had your mammogram? So
7: mm-hmm.
0: I use every possible opportunity. Yeah.
7: Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: And one more thing before I close, you know, my faith is what gets me through the day. Mm-hmm. every day, single day I would, you know, trust God and I trust God. You know, I always say it's the divine that gets us together. You know, God needed this, our, um, this, Podcast, and he knew people needed it. So that's why he gathered the women that he did for the, his particular purpose, and that's to spread the word about metastatic breast cancer. So I elected to be a part or join our NBC because it's needed. You know, we need to continue the conversations, not just for October, but we all year. To- right. And Black women, young women, old women need to see women that look like them. You know and so they can relate and so they can connect so and that's why the reason why I wanted to be a part of this most important project well, so thank thank all you. Of you, and I thank the universe for bringing us together and mm. love you forever
1: thank oh thank you Sheila <laughs> we are so glad you that you with all the things that you have on your plate that you are that you that you chose us too I mean I think that's that's how I feel about it it's really wonderful Let's take a quick break here to hear some more just-got-to-share thoughts from our listeners and guests. Before we do, I wanted to quickly note that Sheila's description of her mastectomy confirmed for all of us that we are going to dedicate a podcast to all the issues around mastectomy, reconstruction, going flat, and all of the things in between for people living with NBC. There have been some recent studies released on this question, and there are plenty of opinions on the matter, so stay tuned for that. Now to our Just Gotta Shares. This next one is from a listener who didn't give her name, but her thoughts certainly resonate with all of us living with MBC. Just gotta share that I'm feeling a bit sad. A friend of
3: mine is coming home on hospice and it's making me uh, reflect on what my future might be. So having a bit of a tough day today.
4: Glad you guys are here.
1: The next two Just Gotta Share messages cover our current reality with the pandemic. It's tough for everyone but we can all agree that it is particularly challenging for those of us with NBC. Have a listen.
8: Hi, my name is Christine, and I just gotta share that I'm really
2: proud of my state for how uh, compliant we've been with following the rules. I live in Baltimore, Maryland, and I was in North Carolina not that long ago, (laughs) and
8: quite a drastic difference. So I'm very proud of the way Marylanders have been handling the pandemic and following the rules and wearing their masks.
9: Hey, this is Anne in Atlanta. And I just had to share, uh, you know, this week I feel like my bubble is just getting smaller and smaller as my state, under the stay at home order. And I, I drove by our city park on Saturday and there were so many people out, just so many people on the streets and just throngs of people. And I came home and my neighbor's kids were starting to play with other kids and I realized that while I thought I was isolated with everyone else during stay at home my bubble just got so much smaller because everyone's starting to have small interactions and those interactions lead to other small interactions and I was really it really got me Saturday that that this is going to be a long haul potentially Um, and not a lot of people understand that because they they think they can go out so i just had to share that from my tiny bubble but i definitely really was impacted saturday and and seeing the world around me start to come back to life which i I am not sure is a good thing but we'll try and stay safe and we'll keep our bubble as small as we had to but i just had to share because not not many people understand that and it was um one of the harder days i've
1: had in a long time Now let's get back to meeting the rest of the team. I can quickly start with me. I'm Lisa Laudico and one of the hosts of this podcast. So I I was diagnosed actually uh, in August of 2017. So this is like my third year i guess anniversary of being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer i'm a de novo uh, metastatic breast cancer patient and i'm hormone positive and her2 negative i'm also the fourth generation in my family to get breast cancer but i am the first to be diagnosed at stage four i uh so it was a bit of a shock to my whole family and certainly to me since i was fully expecting to get Breast cancer uh, after menopause, but certainly not like this, and certainly not before menopause. And it was a it was a big shock. Uh, I am currently on my third line of treatment. I have participated in one clinical trial. I started this podcast because I really felt it could be a place where fellow metastatic breast cancer patients could talk to the stories and the issues and the science and the research around our lives that are impacting our lives. And I wanted it to be something for us, by us. And so I'm so happy that we've been able to create this as a team, I really am. It's, it's, been, it's, a, it's been a complete joy. I also worked with the Cancer Couch Foundation, uh, notably on the Reason for Freezing social media, Reason for Freezing NBC social media campaign. And that was last summer. And that was with my dear, dear friend, Rebecca Timlin Scalera, who is the founder, who was the founder of the Cancer Couch Foundation. And all funds go straight to metastatic breast cancer research. I also have been doing things with SHARE other than this podcast, including webinars and support groups. I'm now with the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, and I'm the co-chair of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance's Awareness Task Force. And prior to all of this fun stuff with metastatic breast cancer... I was a clinical social worker. I worked with children, and then I also had careers in international business, uh, economics, and uh, consulting. I just celebrated my 25th wedding anniversary to a really great guy, and we have two boys who are not really boys anymore. So that's me, in a, in a nutshell. Oh, I'm Canadian. That's another thing that's pretty important. I'm Canadian and American, and uh, all my family's in Canada, and so I'm, I have loyalties to both countries. Next up is one of our producers, Victoria Goldberg.
5: So, my name is Victoria Goldberg. Mm-hmm. I live in New York City, but you can clearly hear by my accent that I'm not a New Yorker. I'm a native of New Jersey. Not true. But before that, uh, I was born in uh, the country that has a uh, different name now and in the city that has a different name too. Mm-hmm. So I was born in what's known as Russia now, in the city uh, that has the name of St. Petersburg. And I came to this country was uh, when I was 18 years old. So I've been here for quite some time. I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer in 2004 on Valentine's Day as I, tell, as I tell people, when you're married for 25 years, you have nothing better to do than go uh, to your gynecologist on Valentine's Day. So this is what I did. My gyne- gynecologist um, palpated something and I said, look, can be, you know, no, no family history of breast cancer. I'm 43 years old. There is no way I have breast cancer. Well, she was right. I was wrong. I had early stage, stage one, breast cancer, triple positive, uh, had all the treatments, even got the Herceptin uh, that was not approved yet for early stage people off-label, and uh, moved on with my life. And for for the next nine years, worked in the investment banking, uh, 12, 14 hour days, perfectly fine. But then uh, one day, perfectly fine, stopped being perfectly fine, and it turned out that I had uh, metastatic breast cancer that spread to my liver, all over my liver, and um, I was diagnosed again on Valentine's Day, so you know, Valentine's Day is not my favorite holiday at all, Mm -hmm. Uh, nine days to the day, that was almost seven years ago. And uh, I've been on the same drug, on my first line treatment all this time. I started with the Taxotere and Taxol, Herceptin and Progetta. Stayed on Taxol for five years, which makes me, a, I guess, an outlier in that as well. And then I moved on to Herceptin and Progetta and I've been okay for the for the last two years on just Herceptin and Progetta and Tamoxifen. Uh, so, this is what i I do for my cancer, but uh, it 's not enough to live a full life so I was blessed to have uh, found a uh, an outlet for for me, which was share. I discovered share through a friend four years ago, and I started as a helpline volunteer, but like from probably the next day i realized that uh, We had a one breast cancer helpline, and I realized that this was not going to work. The metastatic patients cannot talk to early-stage volunteers and vice versa. So it seemed sensible that we should uh, have our own helpline. It took me a year or two to convince Cher to let, let me start the metastatic helpline, and I was blessed, blessed to have such amazing help like and and many many others and now we have like around 20 volunteers who work six days a week from 9 30 to 9 p.m three shifts women who have metastatic cancer who are ready to uh give up their time to talk to others and that's not easy that's that's emotionally draining but they are incredible and so when lisa wanted to start a uh a podcast i was so excited about it because this is my whole my whole thing about share is building community as we say nobody should face metastatic breast cancer alone so this is a continuation of that this is another way to build our community so i'm i'm really excited that we're getting such an amazing response i'm also a member of nbc alliance uh, i'm on the same task force with the, my boss lisa she's my boss here she's my <laughs> boss at the alliance and <laughs> well, i'm also proud asleep. graduate of the project lead nbcc Project lead. Right, right and uh, that was the best experience i've had and i recommend everyone to experience it as well so this is it this is my story and oh yeah and before before my diagnosis, I was the executive director at uh, J.P. Morgan. Well, started at Bear Stearns, then moved on to J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah. We were acquired by J.P. Morgan Chase, and I worked on, in front office in securitized products, but I managed their
2: technology. I and just I-
6: want to say, Victoria, that, that what you've done with the helpline, I think, is so incredible. And when I talk to women on the helpline, particularly who are newly diagnosed. And I remember when I was newly diagnosed, I don't know if everybody felt this way. I just wanted to talk to somebody who yeah. had this, who could give me something to hold on to because being novo, I mean, I thought I was, I mean, I literally thought I was going to die in two months. Yep. I, of course. And so the work that you've done on the helpline, and that's what I hear so many people say, is I just want to talk to somebody who, yeah, who, who understands and who can give me a light or just talk to me about what it really means. And which mm-hmm. just why I think this podcast is so amazing to have those opportunities yeah. to hear from women. I think that's so
1: important.
5: I know it breaks my heart to know that there are so women, so many women out there who don't know about us. So right. And then,
1: uh, yeah. And also maybe have never met another metastatic breast cancer patient and, well, only, know people, and only know people who are early stage and, and yeah. therefore feel so isolated in their experience and, so yes, what we're trying to do on the podcast and with TalkMets, uh, which is what you're doing, Victoria, as well, is to really break down that sense of isolation for people and to provide them with tools and ideas and places for them to get resources to help them and their families, quite frankly, because metastatic breast cancer impacts us, but it also really impacts our families. And so that's something that we're also trying to address. So yes, Victoria, I mean, and Victoria is, was my gateway to share cancer support. So um, Victoria and I go way back to within a couple of months of my diagnosis, I met Victoria. And she was one of my anchors to help me ground myself after such a crazy it felt like a crazy diagnosis right because i, I didn't mention this earlier, but I had um, not one but two mammograms and ultrasounds, but six months prior to my de novo diagnosis and so i I have had baseline mammograms and ultrasounds since I was thirty five because of my family history obviously and we 're not a we 're not a BRCA gene family we have a we have a different uh, far more it's not as studied. It's um, the check two variant of unsubstantiated significance. And so that's every single living member of my family with breast cancer on my maternal side, they all have the same mutation. And so, you know, I would have my mammograms and ultrasounds and I really thought I was doing everything correct. And so it was a shock. And so Victoria was someone who like when she told me how long she's been living with metastatic breast cancer, even though our oncotypes are different, it really provided me with a a sense of possibility. Like, well, okay, I guess, I guess like what Anne said, I guess I'm not going to die in a few months. I think I might have a few more years in me. So yes, thank you so much from so many people, Victoria, for your work on Talk Mats and being uh, a leader and really persevering and making it, Uh, the robust organization and service that it is today. And now let's hear from our newest co-host. Well, I'm so glad to finally be able to
10: meet all of you and see your faces um, instead of just through email or um, on headphones. But my name is Natalia Green and I live in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I was born and raised here in Salt Lake, but I lived in Arizona for about 10 years and one year in Chicago. And then after I had kid, or after I had my first baby, I moved back to Salt Lake. I am a Latinx. I am a daughter of an immigrant, and I have two kids. And I've been living with metastatic breast cancer since two thousand nineteen. So, May of last year, I was diagnosed. I was I was early stage diagnosed in two thousand seventeen, and then just like everyone else, something felt weird. I had really bad back pain, and it just wasn't good. And after seeing three doctors, it finally came right back to my oncologist and we found out that the breast cancer had metastasized to my bones so just dealing with that at the time i thought i was dying because the pain was insane but now i don't i feel great um i'm on my second uh course of treatment the first didn't work so now i'm on zoletta and it's going pretty good i just i got my scans yesterday that's why i had a cat cut out early, and I peeked online, and it looks like everything's the same. Woo! There's a couple of new, like, pressure <laughs> fractures going on, but they look like they're healing a little bit, so, which blows my mind that we just can, you know, live with, like, fractured ribs <laughs> and fine. It gets so nuts. god, we're like, uh, I work great. I feel good. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, I always feel like, man, I'm, I complain to my sister all the time, and she's just like, dude, you have breast cancer, like your bones are broken. I'm like, I know I have bird bones anyways. Um, so when I got diagnosed originally with my early stage, I became more involved with um, support groups. So I was an ambassador for LBBC, the 2019-20 class. And that's where I actually met Shantae. And I'm an ambassador now for the Breast of Us, which I love their uh, group. And then I'm also a state rep for my YAC group here in Utah. So I am ER HER2 positive and it's weird. When I first got diagnosed, we did genetic testing because of my age. I was 33 at the time. And there was a variance in my BRCA gene, but nothing correlated to breast cancer rewind to actually last week, I had um, the genetic counselor call me saying that um, that BRCA gene has been reclassified and it is BRCA2 positive. And I knew that since January, um, I got a second opinion, which I highly recommend, but I got a second opinion at a research hospital and the treatment course I was on was great, but um, the oncologist I was meeting was really interested in my uh, genetic testing. And she's like, Let's send it to our genetic researchers. Like, you know, we get they're researching stuff like this all the time. And uh she said that I got a call back maybe a month later in January saying this variance is in correlation right now with the with bracket two positive, but it hadn't been reclassified. And last week it was reclassified, so that's why I got phone calls. So I'm I'm excited a little bit because it's nice to find a reason that something happened, but more importantly, like for my family, it my family means everything to me, including my extensions. So, mm-hmm. or my extended family. So, it's nice that um, there's a little bit of hope. I had a brother that passed away at 29 of cancer um, mm-hmm. six years ago. So, it, it's nice that it kind of all makes sense. Before diagnosis in 2017, I had recently graduated with a master's in public administration from Arizona State and.
1: I had. Um, I also had uh,
10: my second kid. This one right here that's bothering us. It was through breastfeeding that I found a lump on my breast. I had thought I had black duck, and I went to my OB, and she just like, "This doesn't feel like a black duck." And I had done everything to relieve it, and it wasn't working. So she sent me for further testing, and yep, we found that it was breast cancer. So he kind of helped yeah. me out there. Before um, being diagnosed also, I worked for a community organ- organizing nonprofit in Arizona.
1: You know, I just, I'll, mention, I'll just mention that it's, it's so nice when we can get some of that genetic testing that, um, and I, we encourage everyone to do that because because of my genetic testing and my diagnosis of de novo stage four, my sisters in Canada automatically get MRIs. Whereas in Canada it's a little different than the states. It's a little harder sometimes. You have to go through a few hoops to get it, but you have to they just automatically were breezed through. And so just like just like you, Natalia, it's very important for me and for all of us, right? To make sure that our extended family members know as much as possible and right. are getting are getting screened properly as, and right. as as a result of our diagnoses. So yeah, so go on. Well, I think for any brown or indigenous <laughs> or
10: any people of color, if they get the opportunity to, to get it, to do it because our, our DNA matters not in their gene pool. Oh and so I think a lot of things are undiscovered because they don't have our DNA and they're just, Kind of finding things out for people who are white because all of their dean that's the they have the most samples from white people so or white and so getting a second opinion and calling your um your genetic counselors and asking if uh if anything has changed because mine didn't say i actually stayed in the up yet but they weren't as informed as other research centers.
1: Well, I, I want to just share my, I just got to share my little experience of this week um, and how COVID has impacted my family and me. Uh, so I have two wonderful boys who are no longer boys. Uh, one, I have a college graduate, just like uh, Shantae. He graduated in May to his Zoom graduation. Uh, and he oh, lives he in is. lives And he lives in New York City. And Uh, We have a a rising junior in college, and he's waited two years to have a really important jaw surgery, and uh, we had to reschedule it three times, two times because of COVID, and this is um, really holding up a lot of things in his life, actually, because it's a very long recovery period after jaw surgery, and my diagnosis was another factor that was impacting when he could have his surgery because where was he going to recover? Would he be exposed when he was in the hospital? The hospitals for a while, especially in the tri-state area where we live, uh, were not so safe, but we finally bit the bullet and, and decided that it was going to be as safe as it possibly ever could be. And so my son had jaw surgery um, this past Monday in the in, at, at, at a hospital in New York City. And uh, I wasn't able to be with him overnight in the hospital as I would want to be. Um, But my older son actually stayed overnight in the hospital with him as my proxy and as my husband's proxy. And he was a really good advocate. And he was taping all the conversations with the doctors and the nurses, uh, giving us constant through the night reports on how he was doing. And I was so proud of how both of them did through this kind of being you know independent and young adults and doing something like go for a major surgery a pretty major surgery and uh it was uh, so it's like a COVID silver lining to see my kids actually do hard things uh and take care of each other and be like that and so it was probably one of the hardest things that COVID has done is that i'm okay if it's impacting me to some degree but when it impacts my kids Get out of the way. I'm now mad as a bear, and I really want my kids to be okay. And my diagnosis actually was stopping my son. He didn't want to bring COVID home to me, obviously, and he has been so good this whole summer, really just not seeing friends, not socializing. And it just was breaking my heart that his whole life was so on hold because of my diagnosis and COVID and so covid silver linings is that he's done it and he's on his way to recovery and he's home safe and so it's it's been a very much an emotional time because i didn't want i didn't want that for my family right but it was very much out of our control so i did want to share that story because uh i think in this great time of adversity i think We have people like Dr. Nancy Lin saying, wow, I never realized I have more empathy for my metastatic breast cancer patients who have this kind of almost invisible type of, you know, cells that could strike at any moment or like COVID. It's like this invisible, you know, vapor in the air that we could catch and we're still figuring out how it works. Much like metastatic breast cancer, we still don't have it all figured out by a long shot. And so she she expressed that in her Just Gotta Share that she just feels more empathy. Like, wow, people are freaking out about COVID and we're kind of living with that sense of uncertainty Uh all the time, you know? For me, one of the uh, most uh, difficult things about coronavirus was
5: the fact that uh, the friends that who are not doing well um, can't visit them. So just the thought of them uh, being sick and dying, just maybe luckily surrounded by their immediate family is difficult. Right. Difficult. And if they are you know, if they are spending their last days in the hospital, then forget it. There are so few people who are allowed to visit in the hospital and it's 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 very, very difficult for, for us. The grieving, yeah. the grieving process is even more difficult when, uh, when you when can't you. See, it, see a friend, you yeah. yeah. uh,
1: know. That's been so true, Victoria. And we've lost some really, really important people in our lives during this time. And uh, wild horses wouldn't keep me away from the hospital, just like it, wild horses wouldn't keep me away from my son's time right. in the hospital. Uh, but right. COVID-19 keeps me away from the hospital, sure, uh, sure. you know? Uh, and so that's been, I think, the compounded grief of this time. So many people having to die alone and yep. it happens to people who are obviously in ICU and have COVID-19. So that's, there's there's no silver lining to that. And there never will be, I'm sorry. No. I say, you know,
0: in St. Louis area, um, there are 30,000 free mammograms out there, and Black women will not go get their mammograms.
6: Why is that,
0: Sheila? Because it's the fear of knowing. Yes. I met okay. my daughter's office, and the lady, she was over 50. Her mother was just diagnosed with breast cancer. She looks at me dead in my face and says, you know, I've never had a mammogram. I said, well, what do you? what's the problem? She said, I just don't want to know. My cousin, my mom died of breast cancer. I have breast cancer. She calls me. I'm 54, she's older than me, she's 55. She's never had a mammogram and she says she never will.
3: My sister won't get one. Um, I have two sisters. Um, one of them is 37, one of them is 27. The 37 year old that's here, she now gets, every six months she gets a mammogram. They found a cyst, so they, they you know did all the stuff. But my baby sister, her doctor said okay well then we're going to order a pet scan and a mammogram for you now she told my parents and myself she was like no i don't want to know i don't want to take it
0: and that's and- why it's all about we still got to continue to educate and we still got to continue to have the prevention and awareness and because it's reaching our community but you know and, and it's a lot of things too. access to care maybe they don't have the transportation and then once you get the mammogram, if they find something, that's what Coman is fighting for about diagnosis, um, mammograms, so including your insurance, you know, different things like that. But, you know, it's just, you know, we, I don't know, it's just like, sometimes I just feel like we talking to the wall, like, man, y'all see me up here in better <laughs> with of breast cancer? Shoot, I live from day on three month to three month scans I used to, now I'm sick every six weeks. And me tell me you just want not take, go and get a mammogram and then when you feel a lump you want to text me and say well i feel a lump okay you feel a lump but you've never had a mammogram so guess what they don't even have a baseline
1: and now we have a just got to share that is both true and hilarious i mean we have to have a sense of humor navigating um
7: this stuff My name is Emily Veach, and I'm calling from Macanda, Illinois. I just gotta share the joy I feel when I have a normal poop. Now, before you poo-poo me, consider this. First of all, let's talk about quality of life. I've been constipated, and I've had diarrhea. Even one so-called episode of diarrhea is enough to negatively impact my day. And boy, do I mean impact. How can I do my best work as an advocate or a writer, or even have enough energy to take good care of myself if I'm experiencing painful constipation or if I'm dehydrated and tired from diarrhea? Number two, I realize there are medications available. They can help, no doubt. This is not a rant about the efficacy of those medications, or about the people who recommend them. But what sort of remedy is an anti-diarrheal drug that gives me constipation? And how demeaning it feels to me when someone attempts to quiet my digestive complaints by adding another medication that only confers a short-term benefit. Come on! Any day of the week! I would choose for my stools to be too loose than the excruciating alternative. Too much information? Maybe. But what I really want to share today is that it's worth taking a closer look to find the answer to the question of why is my shit all fucked up? For me, the solution is a moving target. Diet plays a much bigger role. And it's more effective in correcting my GI distress than any medication ever has been. It's taken a lot of research, many conversations with nutritionists, and some experimentation. But now I know the foods I can't digest, as well as what to eat and drink when I do have a problem. So, for anyone out there wondering if your shit will ever be normal again... I say it's worth investigating a more personalized and long-term solution to help you live your best life.
1: As part of our Just Gotta Share episodes, we are excited to introduce the RMBC Life Trailblazer. Our Trailblazer segment each month will highlight an individual or a group making a difference in their local community for NBC and people impacted by cancer in general. There are so many terrific efforts across the country to raise money for research, create NBC awareness and provide supports and services to those in need. We hope to amplify their efforts through this segment and share these inspiring stories. This month, we reintroduce you to Jersey Baker, one of our co hosts, and you will remember her from our inaugural episode where we talked about the Inclusion Pledge. Today, we will talk more about Angel in Disguise, the nonprofit that Jersey started to address transportation and support needs for cancer patients in Charlotte, North Carolina. Angel in Disguise makes it possible for her Vidas, as Jersey calls her passengers and patients, to get the treatment that they need. So Jersey, I'd love to start by, first of all, congratulations on the five year anniversary of Angels in Disguise, that's incredible. And so I'd love to hear uh, all about how it started And also would love to hear your metastatic breast cancer diagnosis and what you were doing before that. And just give us a little bit of a background on how you even got to this place where you're five years in for your Angels in Disguise Foundation.
8: Thank you for having me, Lisa. Angel in Disguise started in 2015, And it started as me running errands for people. And as I was running errands for people, I I came up with the name because someone suggested that, you know, why not charge since you're home and, you know, make money and help people. So I came up with the name and I started handing out business cards to my local cancer foundations in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I got a, I received a phone call. Someone needed to go to a doctor's, two doctor's appointments. Her children were at work, and they couldn't assist her. and But however, she didn't have any funds to, to pay for it. At the time, the rides were $25. And I said it was OK. She was about 30 miles away from where I lived. I lived on one end of Charlotte. She lives almost in South Carolina. I didn't know her, she didn't know me, but five hours later, two doctor's appointments later, you know, we formed a bond. And the next time she needed me, she called me again. And I started thinking like, wow, if there are people out here like her who, who can't get to their appointments because either they don't have a car or family members aren't there, they have to be other people. And so I found out how you start a nonprofit organization and i put my boots on the ground and started running i didn't have an extensive plan i just did it because that's kind of the person i am i get an ideal and i just go i and
6: love
1: I, I love that and but you were you were a metastatic breast cancer patient when you started it am i right yeah, 5 years ago yeah, yeah right so were you an early stage breast cancer patient and then it progressed to metastatic breast cancer or were you a de novo metastatic breast cancer patient
8: I was an early stager. I was stage zero diagnosed with DCIS in 2003. I just finished my master's degree. I was looking forward to starting a new career um, in organizational development. I was working in the international transportation industry. And I was really ready to go on with my life because I was I was Ned for for seven years and then
1: I be no eight years before I became metastatic and that was um, and how many years ago uh, were you diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in two thousand and eleven okay well that's remarkable because you've you've been living with metastatic breast cancer for for a long time and that's that's very hopeful for people i think how many lines of treatment have you been on so far um i'm
8: on my third line of treatment my first line i was on for seven years and then i developed liver mets and i switched to another line and that one it made my liver met well the medicine did not but my liver mets. i went to get a three-month scan and they had increased two millimeters And then I went to get another three month scan and they had increased two millimeters again. And, you know, the doctor said either we can stay on this treatment and see what happens in three months or we can switch treatments. And I mean, why would anyone want to stay on the same treatment and wait three more months? We all know what it's like waiting for the, you know, a lot of people have skin anxiety. I don't have that, but I mean, two millimeters is small, but in my mind it's, it, a growth is a growth, is a growth. So, right,
1: right. I going, like to... going in the wrong direction. Exactly. Uh, right. And then the first five years, your first line of treatment, what would, do you remember the name of that treatment, that that uh, protocol?
8: Yes, it was Faslodex, Exjiva,
1: and, oh yeah, that's it, Faslodex and Exjiva. Wow. Well, that's fantastic, actually. And I think that that gives a lot of people. Um, it gives. It's just a really important data point that there are some people that have really long responses on one line of treatment, and that's just. Yeah. It's good to hear. It doesn't happen for everyone, and the, and it just doesn't happen enough, but it's great to hear that it happened for you. So that's wonderful. Now back to Angels in Disguise, uh, the foundation that you started five years ago, you call the people that you help Vidas. Can you give us a little bit of a background on why you call them Vidas?
8: One of our taglines in Angel in Disguise is making the impossible possible. And the other one is to live life now with everything that's going on. I don't want them to worry about transportation and just to try to live life now because that's all we have is now and everything about the word life is 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 what i am about like living life so i was thinking like what can i call my patients what can i call my patients and in 2013 i stopped working but then i went back in 2014 because my office was gonna close i had worked there for 15 years And i didn't want anyone to say you couldn't get your severance package so i went back to work um we closed the office and then i went to atlanta i then went to um taiwan with a a a co-worker and then the following year i went to europe for 30 days and while i was in spain i went into the um the cathedral that they've been building for a hundred years that I don't think Oh in Barcelona. In
1: Barcelona. Yes, yeah, yes. right, right. The Gaudi.
8: I can't yeah. think of the name of it. And while I was there. I was,
1: yeah. Yes.
8: I was looking around and I saw this beautiful painting and it said Vidas. And I said
1: And that's the name that
8: they're going to be called.
1: I I know that starting uh, a nonprofit is quite an undertaking and you're five years in. Uh, What have you learned uh, that you can share with others who may want to start something to either raise money for NBC research or to do the sort of support services that you've embarked upon in Charlotte?
8: Um, I learned that it's it's definitely it's definitely a lot of work. You have to have a strong team behind you. There are days that you want to throw in a towel, but I felt like every time I threw it in, God threw it back to me. <laughs> and it's it's something that if you really want to do it and if that's your passion, then you'll figure it out and you'll find a way. and I'd always say like money wasn't like an issue because all we needed was gas in a car. Of course, my board said something different, but in my mind, that's what it is. And even if you don't have the resources, you learn to find them. And then you, you learn that there are people out there that really believe in what you're doing and they support you. And those are the people that you have to reach out to. Learn to take time for yourself on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. I don't Talk breast cancer. I don't answer the phone. You know, I don't drive patients. Well, sometimes I drive patients, but I try to, you know, take back some time for myself because self care is important. And if I'm not well, there's no way I can serve the
1: community. Well, I think, and that's so true for for everyone, but especially when you're running a nonprofit and the foundation like you are. Tell us a little bit about the year ahead uh, and beyond, and what's your vision for the future of Angel in Disguise? So the year ahead and beyond, you know, there,
8: since we've been in COVID and I'm metastatic, you know, I take pride in knowing that I didn't, Angel in Disguise didn't stop just because COVID started. We just, I mask up, I, I sanitize the car. And so I hope that in a year ahead that we can get back to the quality care where I can go into the doctor's office with the um, Vidas. Because sometimes they need it, sometimes they don't know what to ask the doctor. So I would love to get back to, to normalcy and, and really helping them and supporting them. And I would like to see Angel in Disguise grow to another city, have um more vehicles out there on the road. Um the vehicle we have now, her name is Vivian, because Vivian mm-hmm. means life. And and just to grow and and increase our funding and help more more vidas even though with COVID and a lot of organizations that we're, we're getting more and more calls every day but i i am so humbled and honored and, and and really proud of myself like like wow look where you started and look where you are now it's nowhere where i want to be but you know it's it's the it's an organization and it's really growing and i'm just i'm just so proud of angel in disguise and so thankful and grateful for all the support that I've had over these five years. And we're going to kick off a campaign next month. um, Oh, great. Calling Loving La Vida's, um, which we're asking people to donate a ride. Um, We found we, we researched and found out a, a ride estimates about $25 round trip with the taking and the waiting and everything. So we're kicking off that campaign. And you know, just making a voice that I did do some research, and I did find out that 5.2% people in Mecklenburg County don't have transportation. Cancer is the number three barrier in Mecklenburg County for access to health care, and cancer is the number one disease in Mecklenburg County. So I really want people to take notice of that and, and see value in what we're doing and help push Angel in Disguise forward.
1: So if any of our listeners are, are hearing this and want to help you out and help out Angels in Disguise, how should they do that? Um, they can go to our website, which is under construction, but will
8: be finished this, um, this by Sunday. And the website is
1: angelindisguiseinc.org. Right, and we'll have that in our episode notes, obviously. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Jersey, for telling us about Angels in Disguise and about your own, your own story. And also, we so appreciate you as a co-host for this particular segment going forward. You're our first trailblazer of the month. And next month, we'll have a whole new foundation to talk about a group of people and, and led by an individual out on the West Coast. So we look forward to that segment and we'll have you back next month for that. But best of luck with Angels in Disguise. It's just the it's just a it's just a great organization and you're doing something as you said boots on the ground making a difference where where it counts where the patient gets to the doctors and the oncologists into treatments it's very very important so thanks thank you thank you for having me it's been great having you join us as we introduced our team highlighted our first trailblazer and listened to a few just gotta share moments from our guests and listeners this month as a final send-off to this episode, we are honored to have a special remembrance. We have lost so many incredible advocates and leaders in the NBC community this past year. We don't ever plan on forgetting.
4: Hello, my name is Karen Rothie DeFibri. I am uh, I live in Naples, Florida now, but I'm a native of Sheboygan, Wisconsin. My daughter, Amanda DeFibri, grew up in Wisconsin and was a... Uh, uh, A uh, true uh, Wisconsinian although uh, she lived in Florida for the last years of her life Uh, her life ended uh, a year ago Sunday August 30th Uh, she died of metastatic breast cancer she uh, it destroyed her liver before that at that point she was also partially paralyzed after uh, surgery to uh, remove a large brain tumor which had grown back Amanda was an incredible advocate and dearly loved all her sisters and the occasional brother in the metastatic cancer community. She was especially active with brain meds patients. She had her primary cancer diagnosed at the end of 2013. She had some, uh, she had uh, two chemos and radiation and surgery, and then she was on a very successful clinical trial. Unfortunately, not successful for her. Because in uh, at the beginning of 2016, she almost had been expecting it. Uh, she never had headaches. She had some uh, left side symptoms, weakness, and some slight seizures, and she pushed for a scan and got it. One thing she strongly believed was that patients like hers, her with uh, triple positive breast cancer, With her two positive should have routine scans as well as body scans It should have routine brain scans brain mris because it so often goes to the brain for her two positive patients uh she had herceptin she had more advanced form of herceptin which i'm pulling a blank on at the moment but it was a very successful trial but like i say it did not it did not prevent the metastasis from going on. The most important thing to Amanda, she was married, she wanted children, she wanted a normal life, but that was not to be. And uh, the most important thing to her, besides her family, became her friends in the metastatic breast cancer community. She was particularly involved, again, with brain mats. She was on, within weeks of her death when she was getting very weak and very sick, she was still constantly on uh, on um, testing with other brain cancer, with other brain metastasis patients, telling them, you know. Uh, I know Dan, Dr. Nancy Lind broke, uh, was on this. Uh, show not long ago and Amanda saw her within two months of her death Uh, but unfortunately Amanda's liver was so bad at this point that uh, there was no treatment that they could do. Amanda had uh, 27 bilirubin when she died. Before that she had had her second craniotomy because of a tumor that had grown back in the dura of her brain and uh, unfortunately while it was metastasized breast cancer it acted more like a uh, primary breast uh, brain cancer in that they had trouble getting the little tentacles out and it left her with a good deal of paralysis on her right side, on her left side. But she went into rehab. She was walking again. She was determined not to be in a wheelchair. She had a fellow Peace Corps um, member who was getting married in fall and she really wanted to get to that wedding, but she didn't. But unfortunately, um, after she had fought her way back so hard, and stayed very active and really, really had wanted to go to Portugal for the ABC conference, but um, then she got too sick and she had an emergency uh, visit to uh, Mayo and basically they told her that there was nothing they could do to help her liver at that point. So she went into hospice at her home in Jacksonville, which she and her husband had bought uh, the previous Christmas and were very happy and so she got to die at home, which she really wanted. She uh, kept saying, I do not want to die in the hospital. Of course, then she added, I wanted to die on the steps in Lisbon uh, at the uh, conference and that wasn't going to happen. Anyway, um, anyway, this will be a hard weekend, thinking of her last days, but it's wonderful to, for me to be able to speak for her in several forums in the last couple of weeks, because she really wanted this message to be carried on, and I feel like I'm doing what she wanted, and I'm, I hope she's approving of it somewhere, and helping me know what to say. So thank you very much for everything you are doing, and uh, I please uh, I, I uh, encourage all brain Med's patients to get second opinions, to look into clinical trials, to speak with other uh, people on these various forums, to always be your own advocate, because no one is a better advocate than you are. And, uh, And also, I want to give a shout out to all the families who have lost somebody or who are terrified of losing somebody.
1: This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and brought to you by our truly collaborative team of Jersey Baker, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Sheila McGlone, Rani Ortica, Shantae Randall, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at SHARE. Interning with us is Angelica Alberstadt, Elena Golub, and Amy Tedeschi. Special thanks to Beth Costello and Rainy Ortica, who designed our logo, to Jake Amarelli for his social media consulting, and to the team at Share, Carol Evans, Jill Golden, and Amanda Russell for their support. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and look for a new podcast every Monday.